Hey kids and cannibals, it's getting close to Halloween and at the House of Krauss we like to do it up right for Halloween. We'll get to that part of the show in just a little bit. First up though, John Waters stops by for a visit. Well, actually he called into the House of Krauss. Hard to know exactly how to describe John Waters these days. He's a film director, a screenwriter, an author, an actor. He's a stand-up comic. He's a journalist. He's a visual artist. He's an art collector. Above all though, He's a great conversationalist, and I've always enjoyed my conversations and chats with him over the years. Uh, this time, uh, we're talking about uh, a few people that have really influenced him. This conversation happened around the time of the release of a book called Role Models, where he chose uh, some people that he's met and, you know, some that he hasn't met uh, to write essays about. Tennessee Williams is one of them. They never met, but John Waters says he saved my life. Uh, also, he talks about who you should try and shock. John Waters has made some of the most wild films ever to hit screens, uh, and he tells you who to shock and how to shock them a little bit later on. We talk about Bobby Boris Pickett and how dancing with Kleenex boxes on your feet will make you feel great no matter what. Then, after that, Barry Levinson stops by. Barry Levinson, film director, best known for uh, movies like Diner and Wag the Dog and Rain Man and all sorts of great movies. This is a, a, a little from the vault segment I've pulled out. I pulled this interview out with Barry Levinson because it's about a movie called The Bay and as it's almost Halloween, I thought I would showcase a movie that is scary, that'll keep you up at night, that will unsettle you a little bit, but probably didn't get the kind of notice I thought it deserved. So that's Barry Levinson talking about a movie called The Bay. First up is John Waters talking about one of his role models, Tennessee Williams. I asked him if he ever met him. No, I didn't meet him, but when I was a kid, and I first, I read something about him in Life Magazine. Believe me, Life Magazine was my, when I was in the 50s, was really great because it was, you found out about Jackson Pollock and William Castle and every possible weird thing. Beatniks I'd read about in, in Life Magazine. But I, when I finally got the Tennessee Williams book from the library and I had to steal it because they wouldn't give it to a child, um, I realized there is another world, Bohemia, that, that no one had told me about, especially in the 50s. Um, I knew I didn't like Ike, but I didn't know why. And, uh, and so this was a way, he did save my life in a way. He pointed me, there was another world of people that didn't fit in and didn't want to fit in and could be artists and writers and everything. So that, that is why um, he did save my life in a way. Well, you talk also in the book about how you shouldn't try to shock your parents. You should try and shock your peers. Now, you should try to shock fashion-wise and creatively. You should try. It's easy to shock your parents. <laughs> what you should try to shock is the people, if you're a teenager, three years older than you, that just are the coolest ones. <laughs> then you knock them off the cool mantle because you finally find what gets them, and then you're the coolest. But do you find now that people don't, I, I, I find now, that people don't express themselves uh, in the same way. There's more of a uniform now, I think, than there ever has been. Yeah, what's the next thing? I mean, from when I was born, I'm 64 years old, I was born, there was first, you know, uh, rockabilly, then beatniks, then hippies, then punk, then grunge, then rappers. Now what? There hasn't been anything for really a long time. But I look and I, I don't see a great deal of, of individuality 
When yeah, I what are they, that's what kids, why aren't they getting on my nerves? Mm-hmm. They, they should be doing something now that's starting some new thing. There is no new trend. There is no new look. They might have nostalgia. You see somebody now with a mohawk. That's not new. That's like a Halloween costume. And 40 years old, the idea yeah. of it. Well, you know. no, the worst is a dork knob. That's my age, <laughs> balding with a ponytail. <laughs> that is the worst possible look you can have. Uh, I'm going to ask you about uh, two people. I hope you don't have one. And if I you do, do not. Okay, good. I do not. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for asking. And if you do, tell, to hell with me. You don't have to follow my advice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's talk. You've mentioned Leslie Van Houten a, a few times. I know that this is uh, a chapter that sticks out in the book um, on some levels because it's the only chapter which is uh, very serious in tone. Yes, um, there's no jokes in it. No, not a lot of jokes. Or no, no jokes. No humor in here at all. Um, tell me. Uh, well, first of all, I guess let's start sort of at the beginning. What do you think drew you to the Tate LaBianca murders to begin with? Because I was making movies in 1968 that were anti-hippie, but I was a hippie and my audience was hippies, so it was basically punk rock before there was such a thing or I had ever heard of it. We were making movies for hippies to horrify them, with Divine being a killer and violence and everything, and everything anti-peace and love. And at the time when that crime broke, I realized that they actually did it. I had this outlet for humor to do it. But they did something. They ended hippies in a way, in a terrible way. They were ever what your parents always said. If you take LSD, you're going to turn into a psychopathic lunatic. Well, it happened. And so to me, it was, it was fascinating. And, and I apologize for that in, in, in the chapter. But I was a kid. I treated it in a smart-ass way. But, but that was before I taught in prison, before I, I met some of the people that were victims of, of Manson and, and also were, have, have ruined their whole life and have certainly ruined society and other people's entire families because of their actions. Um, in the chapter, I bring up everything I could possibly find, the most greatest hits of the worst thing the victim's relatives could have said against her. I had to do that. Right. And a defense lawyer doesn't do that. So I'm beyond being a defense lawyer, even though in a way it is my defense of my friend. Um, People ask you when you're in jail, would you write a letter to the parole board? Well, this is my letter to the parole board. It's just 14,000 words long. Right. Now, when did you realize that you and Leslie Van Houten were more than uh, just, I mean, initially it was a, a relationship between a journalist and a, and a, uh, a subject. When did well, you I did, she wouldn't. I mean, I, I went there to interview her for Rolling Stone. She said, I don't want to be in a newspaper for what I did. I'm ashamed of it. So, so but then... Um, she said, but if you, if you want to correspond, I will, but I don't, I don't want that. I'm not proud. So we became friends, and I, I just completely gave up writing about her. I, I never thought about it for all these years until 20-some years later, and I'm writing this book about role models, and I asked her, and I said, you know, I, I've known you for a long time now. You are a role model to me. Somehow to, to, to get through this terrible thing that happened, can you ever get better? Can anybody ever survive the terrible crime that she was involved in. And, and I think she has, and I think she deserves a second chance. So she knew then that I was going to write about her recovery and her rehabilitation, which I do believe in, and it is about that. Now, on the other end of the scale, I wanted to ask about Bobby Boris Pickett, who's someone that you never met, but you, you say you listen to the Monster Mash almost every day. Have you listened to it today? I haven't today, but I have it right here. I even have a book about the Monster Mash. Um, I, I, it's even more fun to do with Kleenex boxes on your seat, too, if you put them on. Howard Hughes used to do that, and I always was fascinated by that. I thought, why did he do that? Until I put them on one day. And do the Monster Mash in Kleenex boxes, and you will not need Prozac or any kind of drugs. It will put you in a good mood, even if you have chemical depression. <laughs> 
And I think he has a freedom. Every day I have to wake up and think up something. He he never did. He just had one really good idea, that song. And he just did it for the rest of his life. And to me, is that a freedom or is that torture? I don't know. And that's why I write about him in the book. But, that, um, I, and Johnny Mathis, he... he we both all live different lives, except we still end up alone in that dressing room after the show with too much water. They have so much water now. Do they think everywhere you go they have so much water like you're, you're a, a survivor of a desert town or something? They just want to make sure you don't get thirsty and dry mouth on stage. I guess. But you go backstage, you're the only person that has like 40 bottles of water. You think, God. <laughs> John Waters, dancing with Kleenex boxes on his feet. Picture it. I'm picturing it. I've never done it. Maybe I'll try it a little bit later over in the ballroom at the House of Kraus. I'll let you know in a future episode how that worked out for me. Barry Levinson, a director of hits, giant hits like Diner and Rain Man and Wag the Dog. He made a movie a few years ago that hardly anybody saw. It was called The Bay. Clocks in at just under 90 minutes. Uh, it's a found footage movie. Usually those drive me crazy. The idea about found footage is that uh, there's a character who films the action and steadfastly refuses to turn off the camera despite any imminent danger. Now, these things have kind of played themselves out, but The Bay is a cool movie. Uh, the idea here is that he's using found footage unearthed by a WikiLeaks-style website. Uh, journalist pieces together uh, the horrific events of the 4th of July, 2009, uh, in the eastern seaboard town of Claridge. It's a quiet little town, the kind of place where they crown a miscrustation during the annual crab-eating uh, spectacular. But what people don't know is that the people that have been gathered to celebrate the crab-eating spectacular have uh, been ingesting this toxic soup of chemicals in Chesapeake Bay, and it's unleashing a plague that may soon wipe out the entire town. It's creepy. It will unsettle you. It will might even keep you up a little bit at night. This is a good movie, and this is me with Barry Levinson talking about The Bay. I liked that uh, it, it works on two very different levels. I like that I can go and just sit back and be freaked out by uh, the idea that there are these creatures like little aliens almost that can eat you from the inside. I can enjoy that at, you know, on a Saturday <laughs> after, afternoon matinee. Or I can, I can take away the, the message I think that's there, which is we have to be careful about what we're dumping into our waters and what we're putting into our bodies and, and the things that are happening in our world, we have to pay a little bit more attention. And was that your intention, to make a double-pronged kind of film in that way? Well, it is certainly, I mean, it was the, the motivating factor. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Chesapeake Bay is, is, is seriously polluted, has dead zones in it. Um, it, it is a toxic soup, you know, and so, I mean, so you, all of that stuff is there, and then, of course, you bring it into the, this, this storytelling, and so it just gives it a little bit more credibility rather than just make up all these things. So when, that, that seemed a, a natural flow in a way. When did you become aware? I mean, you're from Maryland, you're... you're uh you know, on film, certainly, your roots are showing, you know, uh, in, in all the way yeah. through. There's a through line uh, in your work. It obviously means a great deal to you. 
Um, tell me a little bit about when you first became aware that 40% of Chesapeake Bay is essentially dead. It came up when I had the meeting up with these people about doing the do documentary about the Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, that, that came up. That was the first time I heard that 40% dead. Um, and, and I think I, I, I said to you, um, and so they asked if I would do the documentary, and then I started to do some research, and then part of the research is that PBS did a documentary with Frontline about the Chesapeake Bay and said it was 40% dead, gave all this information, and I was like, I went, holy God, I mean, that's amazing. What a great, terrific documentary. And somehow people didn't seem to be that concerned. Right. You know what I mean? They go, yeah. And so I thought, well, I can do a documentary and, and do it much better than that. That's a really good documentary. Why is it, do you think, that people aren't concerned? Well, you know what happens? I think there's so much clutter that we just sometimes just don't pay attention. Right. And so I began to think, the question you asked, why aren't we? Right. And then I thought, well, maybe it's, there's too much clutter. And maybe we need to, and that's what led to this whole thing, maybe we need to take all of that science, all of those facts, and put it into a storytelling mechanism, right. a film, with characters, you know, struggling on that given day. And maybe that makes the facts more interesting, because now we've given a, a real context to it all. You know what I mean? People will die. This will happen. This will happen. This will happen. You go, oh, and maybe that would be, and that's what led to the idea of doing the bay. Now, it, it's a it, it's a found footage film, I guess, is the genre. Was that always the idea behind this? What, as you were uh, playing around with various ways, maybe if you were playing around with various ways of, of presenting this material, was that always? Uh, well, you know, first of all, I. I don't, know how to, if, I don't know how to approach anything in terms of genre, because right. I, don't, I, I think if you think in genre, then you sort of limit yourself, like, oh, here's the genre. It, it, it is the process of, of how something begins to flow. A documentary doesn't seem right. All the facts leads to sort of storytelling, which leads to the idea of film. And then, well, then how do you tell the story? Uh, well... If it was going to be a documentary, then why don't we like shoot it that all of the people, that we collected all the footage from all of these different people, and it has a documentary quality to it because everybody was running around with their cameras, and then that's what we gathered, and then we try to put it together to present the story. And so that just by nature seemed the way to go about it. Like, if you go, well, how do we do it? Oh, well, that makes the most sense. Yeah. And so that was sort of it. And therefore, you say, okay, now we have to use unknown actors. Uh, because if you use really well-known actors, it kills all the credibility of the piece. And even though we'll know it's a movie, it's not like we're going to fake people out like, oh, I didn't realize this was, a, this was a movie. I thought it was a documentary. We all know it's a movie. Right. But if you put... If you're trying to say that this was actual footage shot by these people and it's Brad Pitt, it, it just kills all credibility. Right. And so you, the, the idea kicks off, therefore you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this. And that's how it evolves. Well, and you also have the idea that if Brad Pitt or Will Smith 
or whoever is a star of that level or Tom Cruise is, is in the, the, the sort of the heroic role, you know that nothing bad's going to happen by the end of the movie, you know? <laughs> it's a different kind of thing, so therefore you go down that road, you know, and I shot it very quickly. I shot it in 18 days. I yeah. shot it for a little over $2 million. And all of those things are all part of it. Shooting very quickly like that, does that mean that you're working from instinct, you know, completely in a way that maybe you wouldn't be if you were working on a film that had, you know, a hundred million dollar budget? And, and, and they're two different animals, right? Well, they are different animals. I mean, I've shot both. I mean, I did, you know, I did Wag the Dog in 21, yeah. 29 days. Right, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that was shot for, I don't mind shooting fast. I don't mind shooting from the hip. And I don't mind making decisions like, all right, do this, do this, do this, do this. That's okay. I, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm okay with thinking on your feet. I mean, I've done a lot of improvisational stuff. It's how I began. So I'm not afraid to experiment. I understand enough about the writing that, okay, we can, we can go to here, but if we go over here, we're off course too far. You, know, you have to understand the mechanics and structure at the same time. Right. You know, because otherwise improvisation can go anyplace, and then that's no good. You can only improvise where it's actually structurally moving you along. It, well, yeah, that's why you can never say no. I mean, there, there's rules to improv, I think, that can, if you say no, it stops a scene dead, but if you could push it too far, then you're, you know, yeah. you're in la-la land, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it did the idea of working with large ensemble casts, as you have in the past, uh, that, I would think, played well here, because... Well, I don't know that I'd call this an ensemble cast. There's a lot of characters because we're seeing a town under siege, so we're seeing snippets from a lot of people. From different points of view. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's where it probably differs from this concept of found footage thing. Mm -hmm. The found footage is normally fairly contained. One guy with a camera running through the street, you know. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's yeah. a contained movie. It's in a house. It's in a something. You're in the woods. Right. You know what I mean? Here, you're all over the place. You're underwater, above water. It happened eight weeks ago. It's what you know. It has a it has a bigger canvas to it, but it it was the footage that was collected in order to put it together to make sense out of what happened, and and who didn't do what they should have done, etc. Right, right. I liked uh, that. There's a framework for this as well. There's a narrator essentially who who uh, walks us through this rather than. Um, the idea of just presenting this footage and letting us connect the dots, because the story, I think, needs that to, to propel it forward. Um, there are some of, of uh, films of, of this style that don't have that, that just rely completely on the images, and often the images aren't good enough to keep you interested all the way through. And I like the framework. Oh, well, thank you. And I like that the, the movie has a little question mark at the end as well. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't wrap up everything in a nice, tidy little no. package. I also thought that the fact that she is a, um, she in a sense failed as a reporter, and now she's looking back, and she can tell you that she didn't do this, and she didn't do this, yeah. and she didn't understand that, and she was ill-prepared in a way. She was in over her head, and, and there's a certain consequence to that, and there's a certain guilt that she has, even though we can't spend a lot of time with it. You, yeah. you sense that. And she can make fun of herself a couple of times, so it's a, a little humor in there as well. You yeah. know? Is, there, is that any kind of comment on the media, or is that just sort of the way the story evolved? It's just the way the story evolved, yeah. because, I mean, she was just a student. Yeah. I mean, so you can't have great expectations. Yeah. So it was just a student trying to cover something, and she was in overhead. And three years later, you see that she's beginning to make 
sense of what she didn't do, etc. And she seems more grown up and yeah. less childlike. Well, that's it. That's all. That's all for the House of Kraus this week. I have to start working on my costume for Halloween. I'm going as sexy Donald Trump. I think everyone's waiting to see what that turns out like. Uh, my thanks to John Waters for calling in. My thanks to Barry Levinson for reminding us what a great movie The Bay is. Check it out. You won't be disappointed on October 31st. Also, thanks to you. Thanks for coming back every Monday to visit with the House of Kraus. Without you, this would just be a big old drafty place. I mean, cool people would still come by. You just wouldn't be here to hear my conversations with them. Anyway, thanks to you so much for coming by. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. So please come by and visit us again.